Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guests today are Sarah Baker Hansen, food critic for the Omaha World Herald, and Matthew Hansen, columnist for the Omaha World Herald. Sarah Baker Hansen is the food critic for the Omaha World Herald. She writes restaurant reviews and started the periodic Food Prowl series, wherein she creates teams of tasters and goes around Omaha to find favorite foods in a number of categories. And you can find them all online at omaha.com foodprowl. The Better Half is her second book. She also wrote The Insider's Guide to Omaha and Lincoln, part of a series of internationally focused travel books. She won a 2015 Great Plains Journalism Award for Best Review. Matthew Hansen is a Metro columnist at the Omaha World Herald, where he writes two or three columns a week focused on Omaha and Nebraska. In his five years as a columnist, he has written about presidents, senators and governors, cops, gangsters and drug snitches, Cuba, Afghanistan, love, death, and an 85-year-old man who almost went to federal prison because he refused to stop growing bandit asparagus. Previously, he covered the military, writing extensively about Nebraska veterans living with PTSD. He traveled to Afghanistan to cover the war there. Hansen has won several national journalism awards, including a Society of Professional Journalists Award in 2009, honors from the National Headliner Contest in 2013 and 2014, and a 2017 Inland Press Journalism Award in Profile Writing for his story on Richard Hart. He was named the 2015 Great Plains Writer of the Year. Matthew and Sarah, welcome to the show. It feels really weird to me to be interviewing both of you because you live large in the community sphere and the public world. Like You, you have a presence. So it's always interesting. I, I wonder if you yourselves have experienced this, engaging with people whose persona lives much larger in the mind's eye than perhaps what we would think of as just an ordinary human interaction. <laughs> That's flattering. Um, I don't. <laughs> we don't think of ourselves that way. Obviously, I mean, we are. We're used to sitting where you are um, and asking the questions. And it is a little weird for us. I think it's at least weird for me to do the promotional stuff we did around this book because I'm not used to being the uh, interviewee. But uh, at the same time, I mean, yeah, we're. It's not like we're. It, it's a little different. You talking to us than us talking to senators or. <laughs> Or congressmen, or or whatever. We're just regular folks who live in Omaha. That's I mean, that's that's how we think of ourselves, at least. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the weirdest part is just being interviewed. We're not used to it so much. Um, we're used to interviewing other people, so that's the biggest difference for me. I think it's both. It's easier for both of us to talk ab- about other people's stuff than it is to talk about our own. It's so Midwestern. It seems is that is that a fair characterization of Midwesterners? Oh, yes, I think so. Um, uh, It's easier for me to write about, you know, someone's food or talk about their restaurant or what I think about it versus, you know, our our project that we did together or or something about myself. Yeah, I think that's a common trait of Midwesterners for sure. It's interesting because that honestly relates a little bit to what we were working on with the the better half, the the kind of, that wasn't the point of of the book in any way, but as we started going out and talking to people, particularly uh, people in small towns, you start to realize that there's a lot of great stories out there. And one of the reasons that they're not known is because of that sort of built in, I mean... I don't know exactly the word for it, but it's it's this belief that we're as Nebraskans and especially uh, as rural Nebraskans in some way not as important uh, as other states or other parts of the, the country. I think we've kind of bought that line, that thinking a, a little bit. So the opportunity for us with something like The Better Half is because of that and other reasons, there's a ton of good stories out there that nobody's ever really told. Now might be a good time to ask you both to share something about your upbringing and how perhaps that has shaped who you have become now. Well, uh, I grew up in Omaha, West Omaha, knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to write, pursued journalism, you know, starting as a high school student and kind of continued with it. And when I got to college, I realized that I was, I liked writing and I was pretty good at it. And I also found that I was really interested in criticism, which is, um, people always ask me how I became a food critic and I like food a lot, but I, my main interest and 
kind of how I first came to it was that I was really interested in the role of a critic and I spent a lot of time studying art history. That was my um, emphasis of my degree when I was at UNL in Lincoln and um, spent a lot of time looking at visual art, wrote about visual art critically for a decade before I ever worked at the World Herald. And the World Herald then, you know, gave me this opportunity to, to try my hand at food criticism. And your question about how I was raised, I like to sometimes think back on when I was a kid, my parents would throw these great dinner parties. You know, they were really into food long before that was trendy or there was a food network. And so one of the biggest treats of my childhood is I would get to stay up late and try all of the fancy um, 80s trendy foods that my parents would make. So I had chicken liver pate, I had chocolate mousse, I had all these like amazing cheese plates and, you know, souffles and all this food when I was a kid. And so um, that I think really kind of shaped me in a way that I that I realize now that I maybe didn't then. Um, I also got to pick any fancy restaurant I wanted to go to in Omaha after my dance recitals when I was a kid. So that also um, was a kind of a formative experience of learning a lot about food as a kid. Um, And so my parents had a, a big hand in turning me into an adventurous eater. That seems so appropriate that that would have been in the 80s, which was such a silly confection of a, a decade. Oh, yeah. I remember my, I specifically remember my dad making the souf, the chocolate souffle, which I had never seen anything like that before. And also, uh, my dad's a retired architect. And so he would do these pork crown roasts and he would make booties to go on the, <laughs> on the roast. And I just thought that was so fancy and cool. And just being able to try that uh, when I was a kid really made me happy have an an interest in dining and food from an early age. Sarah and I did not grow up the same way. (laughs) Um, I'm from Red Cloud, outside of Red Cloud, Nebraska, population 1000, uh, son of a farmer, grandson of a farmer, great grandson of a farmer. My, I think it's my great, great, great grandmother was the homesteader about uh, two or three miles from where my parents still live. So uh, we did not have dinner parties. I did not uh, taste any souffle. <laughs> uh, but you know, it, and and that, but that upbringing, and it was a great uh, childhood. Um, uh, really, I, I didn't realize it at the time. I mean, that it was going to inform my later uh, personality or writing. But it's certainly now, you know, with this this uh, project, for example. Uh, really brings me back to to that place, caring about role places and and trying to figure out how to to um, make other other people care about them and and make, help them to realize that they have things in them that are worth caring about. So to some degree, um, you've arrived at these places for different motivations. I don't know if these motivations are similar, but you are expressing in a similar format, but perhaps with slightly different motivations. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we both knew that we wanted to write from our teenage years. And in my case, and, and maybe somewhat Sarah's, it, it just quickly became obviously the thing that we were good at, as opposed to, say, math, which we were both really bad at. But yeah, in, in my, I always tell people that my grandma really, really wanted me to be a preacher, right? She was from the, the Methodist church there in, in Red Cloud. And to her, from a young age, I had an ability to, to um, tell a story in a way that reminded her of our minister, which uh, that, that was not, that was most definitely not my calling. Um, but it, yeah, there's something in that kind of rural storytelling tradition that has always spoke to me. Although, I mean, I didn't ever think about that till I was 35, probably, right? I mean, most of my early life was spent trying to figure out how to, how to get away from my hometown. But of course, in that uh, obvious way, you, you find yourself pulled back toward it. I think kind of where I ended, I ended up with food is similar in a way to Matthew's desire to tell um, the kind of stories that he tells through his column, which are stories about people, but there's some sort of always a like a universality to it in some way where even if that's not your story or you don't know that person, you can still find some part of the story um, to get into. And I feel like food does that for a lot of people. You know, they, they learn about people who are different than them or they get the experience to try something. Um, and I feel like 
like, you know, education is a big part of being a food writer, kind of trying to get people into something that they think they won't like or they never would try. And so I kind of, I feel like, you know, when we, we talked about doing a project like the better half for a long time, like since we first got together and bringing those two things together and, and kind of telling our, our own style of stories, um, really kind of, made sense in a way to us. And then when we applied that idea to all these stories that we knew about both of our home state that we, that we grew up in, in very different ways. Um, but nobody was telling these stories. We thought it was a really good opportunity, um, that had just been really overlooked. You've talked about criticism as a, as a way to explore culture and how we manifest and talk about culture and we've talked about story too so maybe maybe we'll start first with criticism as a particular field uh, that you know maybe speaks to the the culture that we live in and how we shape culture how we're shaped by culture so maybe describe the role of the critic and its its place in our cultural discourse oh geez that's a big question um i feel like you know i guess when i was a student of criticism i never really thought I would be able to be a critic in my daily life as my real person job. You know, for many years, I did it as a side job, just something I, you know, did freelance work. And now that I do it, sometimes I almost kind of have to, you know, I don't know, snap my fingers a little bit and think like, okay, you're actually going to write this review and people are going to read it. <laughs> so you have to come up with something, to, you know, thoughtful to say. And I feel like I'm really... I feel lucky all the time to be able to write about food in Omaha because Omahans love food. They love restaurants. They have lots of opinions, which I really love. I get to express my opinion and then they, if I write something that moves them either way, you know, they are not shy about exp expressing what they think back to me. And so I feel like that discourse is sort of one of the best things about writing about this particular topic in Omaha. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's one of the, my favorite things about it. And, and just, you know, it's such a great beat to have, you know, uh, it's, there's so many things that happen and people are very engaged both in the industry and then the people who read what I write. So that makes it a lot of fun for me. How do you actually go about the practice of being a critical reviewer? Because if this was potentially a larger city, there might be more anonymity that you would try to wrap the reviewing process within. But, but this is Omaha, and, mm -hmm. and that I would imagine is slightly harder, however much you try. So how do you go about the process of you know, visiting an establishment, yeah. tasting the food, exploring the experience, and at the same time, maintaining a degree of um, impartiality from the owner. Yeah. Well, um, there are some kind of basic like nuts and bolts of my job. And so I don't ever visit a restaurant unless it's been open at least one month. Usually it's more like two or three months. I go at least two times. Um, I try different things both times take in all aspects of the restaurant. So it's, of course, about the food, but it's also about the atmosphere, the service, the cost, you know, the location, all of those things play into it. Um, the World Herald pays for everything myself and my dining partner eats. So we don't accept anything for free. And I work anonymously as much as possible. So I, you know, don't, they don't ever know I'm coming. I don't make reservations in my own name. Um, I, you know, try to make my experience as close as what any general diner's experience would be. And so those are kind of the, the basic parts of it. Did I forget any parts? The only thing that I've noticed from being the dining partner for any number of years now is that if the restaurant is bad, there's not really anything they can do when she walks in. I mean, you always see, she's certainly often recognized, um, but, uh, and you know, you'll see the manager suddenly appear, for example, in a way that wouldn't happen otherwise. But, you know, if the food's bad, I don't, I don't know how they're going to make it good in the next uh, 12 minutes. So I, while it does, I think it makes it harder that Sarah can't be completely anonymous. I don't really, I don't find that it, affect the experience very much. I could be delusional by saying that, but it, it doesn't seem like it matters that much. 
No, I think you're pretty, I think you're right. I mean, you know, it is going to be what it is. And uh, reviewing is such a subjective thing anyway. And I feel like if, if people were to read my reviews every week, this, certainly there's things I like that you'd be able to figure it out pretty easily. And there's things I don't like, and you'd be able to figure those things out too. And so, you know, I think it's just kind of... Uh, I try to take all the knowledge that I've built up over the six and a half years I've been doing this and apply that. So think about, you know, ingredients, think about what's popular, think about what people like, what's this place known for, what are they setting out to do, have they done this in another location, and is this location better or worse than that one, uh, has Omaha seen this type of food before, or have they seen this type of food in this particular context, um, so all of those things like come into my mind, I do think part of that does come from my art history background, um, I had a professor who would challenge me to think about why two pieces of art were hanging on the wall next to each other, and so you know, you can apply that to why are these two foods on the same plate or on the same menu or in the same restaurant. Um, and, and when I start thinking about places using those kind of parts of my brain, it becomes a lot easier to come up with what I think. Take me outside. Sit in the green garden, nobody out there, but it's okay now. Bait in the sunlight, don't mind if rain falls. Take me outside, sit in the green garden. And I'll fly on the wings of a butterfly. High as a treetop, down again. Putting my bag down, taking my shoes off. Walking the carpet, a green velvet. I think you occupy a position of some import in the community, but with that comes a responsibility. And so you are one of the few people who are engaging in a robust public dialogue about what is good and bad and, and with an intelligent view on that. But also you have some responsibility to that power where you could make or break certain uh, businesses or approaches. And I wonder how you deal with that kind of accountability and responsibility. Well, I take that really seriously. Um, I think about that on a weekly basis, you know, as I'm working on stories. And I feel like, you know, over the time I've been doing this, one of the most important things uh, that I that I feel like keeps me in the position to have the dialogue is that I am honest. And so, you know, good or bad, whatever happens, if you read it and I wrote it, that's what happened. Uh, and some of it, of course, is my opinion of what I think of ha what happened. But, you know, I mean, I don't ever skim over something that was bad or leave it out because it was bad or vice versa. If somewhere was really great, you know, I say I thought it was really great and people do not always agree with me. I can tell you that for sure. I have a lot of people who interact with me on Twitter and Facebook and other social media. I get a lot of emails. I get phone calls of people, you know, who agree, who don't agree, who just want to tell me their experience of what happened to them at this place. And so I feel like you know, one of the things that is really important to me is to write something that makes people feel something, even if it's negative, because then, you know, my what I've written and my account of the experiences I had and my opinion of it has actually driven them to some sort of action, whether it's they say they're going to go try it themselves or, you know, they totally disagree with me. That's great. I would rather have that than just say everything is good and no one ever says anything. One of the things that the World Herald does that I think um, I know a lot of other places don't do is every review I do after my visits, um, 
I always do an interview. So just before this, I did an interview with the restaurant owner about an experience. And I told him the good parts and I told him the bad parts. And he gets a chance to respond to that. When you see quotes, that's from that interview. And so I could do a whole nother radio show about awkward interviews, <laughs> challenging interviews, because you have to, I mean, you know, I have to be honest in that situation too and say, you know, this is what happened and this is going to be in the review. And sometimes they do not like to hear that, but that's part of the job. Matthew, you, you talked about stories. I would like to know a little more from you about what is the place of storytelling in our culture today and, and how do you see the role of a storyteller? Um, I don't think stories themselves have changed very much. I mean, I, I think that one of that, that that's one of the things that I really love about stories. I mean, you can go back to uh, uh, Socrates or you can go back to Plato or you can go, you know, back to Shakespeare and uh, or you can go today and look at something that your, uh, uh, you know, aunt posted on social media. Now the, the social media post might not have quite the skill of the other, uh, people that I just mentioned, but you know, there's some things that are similar about those experiences and the similarities are, are what I really love. I mean, stories have a beginning, a middle and an end. There's no way around that. You, if you, if, if you don't have a beginning, a middle and an end, it's not a story. Um, you know, stories that are good tend to, um, have both, uh, a plot and, uh, you know, sort of another point to exist, um, another reason to exist. Um, and so, uh, you know, the universality uh, of stories is one of the things that, that really, really, um, attracts me to them. I think it's how we make sense of the world. That's why it's important. I mean, with, without stories, I, I just... Uh, I just find them the, one of the most fundamental ways that we um, get to our own beginning, middles, and, and ends as human beings or as societies. I mean, I, th they're that important to me. You said earlier that you weren't cut out. It wasn't for you the life of ministry. Right. But to me, you're describing a different form of ministering to a congregation. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> if you leave God out of it, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> very secular uh, minister over here. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, my, my grandma passed away a number of years ago and I can't ask her, but it would be interesting to know, you know, to, to have her in here and ask her why she thought that that was a good idea for me. Yeah, I, I I don't know I don't know what to say beyond that, but yeah, there there's there is a tie. I mean, a good minister, in particular, when you're talking about the faith tr tradition that you know my family is from, where it's a very small town um, tradition, that's where you went to hear stories, right? Not necessarily always uh, biblical stories. A lot of times, stories just about how to live life. Um, so yeah, it's it, there's a there's a similarity in that way. I'll, I'll take that. But as you say, stories have power. And so if they, as I agree, are ways that we make sense of the world and our lives, then you as a storyteller of both excellence and professional endeavor have a much greater influence on how people are making sense of their own lives and their place within the world. And again, thinking about responsibility, you, you are cultivating that opportunity for people. And I wonder how you respond to that um, possibility and responsibility. Hmm. Honestly, I don't really think that much about that. And I think it's partially because, uh, you know, a lot of what I do isn't sort of mayor X is terrible or vote for candidate X and not candidate Y. Um, I, I don't exist a ton in the political sphere, although, you know, I'll occasionally write stuff that touches on politics. I'm much more interested in stories about the place, stories about the city, stories about quote unquote regular people. Um, and I don't, th I mean, that's, I'm not saying that's not important. I think it's actually more important, but I don't think it carries the same, it, at least for me, doesn't carry the same burden of worrying, you know, I, most of the stuff I write, I don't worry, oh man, people are going to, you know, go out and do X thing. And I didn't really mean it. I mean, and, and actually I, I agree wholeheartedly with something that Sarah said earlier. And it's, it's just the idea of being honest. I mean, if you're authentic 
in your own writing, that certainly lowers the the fear factor when it comes out in the paper that day. I mean, that's all you can really do in some way and hope people react to it uh, in any way that they, they want to, because that is a huge part of it, especially in the 21st century, right? Everybody can have an opinion and, and does, you know, th- it was a process for me too to develop the uh, a thicker skin to be able to, and just to be able to understand that, that, you know, if I was going to say something that was a little bit edgy or critical, then people should have the right to do that right back at me. And I think we're both at a place now where we're much more comfortable with that. I think there is maybe something to be gleaned by asking you to talk about your experiences in Afghanistan, in Cuba, and then maybe in, in the prairie. Because they're three very different places, you probably reported three very different seeming types of stories. But I would imagine that each of those experiences perhaps shares some common thread. So why don't we start with Afghanistan and maybe share a little bit about your experiences there? Sure. Well, one of the the things that I always tell people about Afghanistan is that I liked being there, which always surprise, surprises people, right? You think of war zone, you think of war and there's obviously reasons why it's terrible but you know there was just something about the daily life continuing on uh in Kabul despite the I mean at that point and this is uh, I mean this is a long time ago still on the same war but uh you know 2005 when I was there people who had been at that point like li- people my age had lived lives that were completely marked and marred by violence. They, they had not experienced peace in their lifetimes at that point and still haven't. It was pretty amazing to, to watch how people continued to, to live life, to exist, to do all the things or many of the things that, that we do here and take for granted here. Um, and sometimes they had to fight for those things in a way that we don't. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was a weirdly positive experience for myself. Uh, in that way, I, I also saw some stuff that, that was, you know, not fun to see and, and including with, uh, service members uh, from the US who came back here, or like you mentioned in the bio, I've written a lot about, uh, post-traumatic stress, it's sort of at a point when that started to be, um, discussed more, maybe a decade ago. In some way that is both in Afghanistan with Afghans and also with American service members sort of seeing the uh, after effects of war and trauma is in some ways worse or harder than than sort of uh, being in the war zone itself, both for them and probably for me. Uh, I've been to Cuba twice, the first time when I was a, a college student and then uh, a couple years ago for the World Herald. Both times the place really blew me away. I mean, it's a... Um, it's this oddity of a uh, a society uh, of a governmental system, this this you know little runt of a country that uh, somehow has managed to outlast. I can't remember how many presidents Fidel Castro outlasted, um, but it was something like a dozen. You know, and and kept this way of life in place. It doesn't make a lot of sense to Americans in a lot of ways, or many Americans. Um, but they take a ton of pride in. There's obviously problems with it too, and they see those problems. But it's it's really it it felt, um, uh, especially in 2003, which is the first time I was there. It felt very um, special to be able to go there because so few Americans were there at that point. Because it's so much unlike any other place that I'd been. Um, so I, I really really got into Cuba for that reason. And what a great place to practice journalism because of that, right? When you go to a place that you sort of have no previous um, kind of context for, it's hard to do journalism in those instances because, um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, especially the first time I went there. But that's that's what really makes it fun too. So now um, maybe compare and contrast some of the stories, perhaps through illustration, that you were gathering from these places. The Cuba stuff, specifically the series in the in the World Herald that I did about Cuba, was much more. Tra- it, it was picking out different people and different things that were happening in in Cuba and trying to allow um, our readers to see the place as a as a real place, as opposed to kind of a superficial thing that you know, you know, three things about. Um, uh, so I, I really tried to give people as much as I could with what 
kind of knowledge I had, a 360-degree view of what it looks like, at least what it looks like through my own eyes. Afghanistan, the, the Afghanistan series I did was actually kind of similar in that I tried to to pick out different stories and let it tell um, the whole story. But it's there's obviously differences in that it's not a totally functioning place. At that point, it was hard to get around for security reasons. So I tended to write more about or as much about Americans or Nebraskans in Afghanistan as I did about Afghans. Um, so those are those are probably the differences. But the similarities where you tell p- stories about people, no matter where they live. I mean, it doesn't really matter on, on some level. Their stories are what matter and their stories sort of, you know, if you can show the univ- universality of their stories, people tend to attach themselves to them, even even if they are uh, in Afghanistan or in or in Cuba or in rural Nebraska. Rather than ask each of you for maybe some favorite interviews or stories or experiences you've had, I'm I'm wondering more, what are the experiences you've had doing the work that you do that have changed you the most? (laughs) I know. I need time to think. (laughs) Now's the time for a Girl Scout cookie. (laughs) Yeah. You can edit this part out while I'm thinking. Uh, Definitely, there were some stories that I did um, during the Better Half series that were, um, I don't necessarily know if they, well, there were a couple of stories that I did that were really cool. And I I didn't expect to do one of them, but it was actually about uh, Bassett, Nebraska. Um, I, we had traveled uh, to this area and we were going to do a couple other stories and a, a different story that I wanted to do had fallen through. And so I had to pick up another story and I had to do it fast. Um, and we got to the Bassett Lodge, which is this just sort of incredible place in a very small town that was built uh, in 1950 um, for ranchers who would come there for cattle sales somehow it has survived and looks exactly the way it does now it looks exactly the way it did when it was built in 1950 so like nothing has changed the lobby is exactly the same and it's just really remarkable it looks like if you were to say a place came out of central casting like this did and so i was interested in the place and a lot of people had suggested it as a story but i didn't really see the story outside of there's this cool place that exists and it looks really neat in this certain way that people don't expect. But then we got there and it had almost closed the year before because it was being run by a brother and sister and they didn't want to do it anymore. And they had a really hard time finding someone to buy it. And so this couple, neither of them are from Bassett. They, um, they have six children in between the two of them. Uh, they had no hotel experience. They have never worked in a restaurant. The woman was in the medical field. The guy worked for Nebraska Game and Parks. They decided they were going to buy it. And so they bought it. When we got there, the wife of the couple was at the front desk. And then we came back later and she was 
helping some customers. And then we got, you know, we came downstairs later, asked her for a question, asked her a question. She was there to answer. It was like 1130 at night. We got up the next morning, went downstairs at 7 a.m. She was there. She was helping a group of like retired women set up their card game, which they played there on a regular basis. We left. We came back. She was still there. You get the picture. She's like there all the time. And so all of a sudden I thought this actually is a really cool story. But I didn't see that before we got there and before I saw this happening. So I feel like through the through the better half and what Matthew said something earlier, people don't really see their own stories. This couple did not think that this was a story. And moreover, they didn't really take me too seriously. I don't think when I told them I was going to do a story, they were like, okay, fine, we'll talk to you. And then I did the story and I got an email the next day from them and they were like, wow, you really did do the story. And I was like, yes, of course I did the story. Like, <laughs> what did you think I meant? Um, it was it was a cool experience to go to this really neat place and then to be surprised by the story and then for the story to have turned out to be one of my favorite stories in the book. And so I feel like I guess what I've learned from that or how it's changed me is that, you know, you always like you're always looking for you think, you know, kind of what where the best story is or what it's going to be just from how it looks on paper. But that's not always the best story. And so I'm, I'm really glad in hindsight that I did this story instead of the other one. That story still looks good to me on paper and I would do it if I had the chance. But I'm it's just I'm so glad of how this particular story came about. I should have been trying to think of my answer. You while had we were... a lot of time <laughs> <know>. to think. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, the the tough thing for me with this is that there are so many stories to choose from, right? I mean, if you're talking about like a personal growth development thing, I, I actually, I mean, the the first one that pops into my head is a, uh, well, there are two. One was in college. They were actually both kind of in college. One was one was. Um, the, it's the first time that I wrote a story. It was a weird story about minor league baseball, Nebraska baseball players in the minor leagues. Not really that interesting to talk about on the air, but the point was, it was the first time when I realized that I had some ability to, to kind of use language to pull people into an experience in sort of a narrative way and sort of a, um, uh, in that case, kind of a, almost like a folksy way to make people care. And I ended up winning. And I mean, I was not, I was just sort of doing my thing in the basement of the Nebraska union, which is where the daily Nebraskan, where we both worked and met, um, uh, where that was. And, you know, I ended up winning awards for that story. And it, and it, it, it was the first time when I really understood the power of like what language or what voice could do for you and to you. Um, the other one is I did a profile of Dick Cavett when I was 22. I was still in college, but I did it for the, the Journal Star, the newspaper in Lincoln. And it was this first experience where, I mean, I never interviewed anybody who's quote unquote important before. And it was a weird, I mean, a 22 year old going to interview Dick Cavett is a pretty weird situation just to think about now. Um, and I got there the first day I got, I got to New York. I met him at this cafe right across from the Met. Um, and I, I had this prepared list of questions written down and I asked him the first question and I swear to God, he talked for like two hours. And I had no ability as a 22-year-old to, to steer the interview in any way. Uh, so I just let him talk. And, you know, at the end, I hadn't asked 90% of the questions that I w was going to ask. Weirdly, after that, we went, he took me to a Broadway show and we met Edie Falco back, backstage. I was so lame. I didn't even know who Edie Falco was. I was sort of pretending like, you know, that I, did, I did not know the uh, Tony's wife from The Sopranos at that point. Um, so the next day I, w I was going to visit him again cause I set up a second interview because the first one was so bad. I started writing, I was actually taking the bus to the Hamptons. They call it a jitney. I have no idea why it's a bus. And, uh, I started writing on the bus using the stuff that he had said that I thought was a total failure on my part as a reporter. And it became the best stuff in my story. And so that was the lesson where you sort of can go where the story or the person takes you and find the the value in it as opposed to saying oh i've you know sort of being super type, type a about it and and saying well this doesn't work because it hasn't fit my 
preconceived uh, notions for what the story what the story is. We've touched a little bit on the, the nature of what you do as a as a business and a professional craft. We talked about the 21st century a little bit and the millennia of stories and storytelling that underpins the work that you do. But in this 21st century period where technology is you know, expanding in unusual ways, enabling us to tell and maybe democratize the telling of stories, but also the business impact of technology and how the media itself is having to adjust in ways that maintain the existence of traditional media. How are these things affecting you and the work that you do? How is it shaping the stories you tell, what you choose to do, how you choose to broadcast and share stories? What, what's the future for you guys in, in the media? Um, well, it's definitely changed uh, even from when I started the paper and surely from when you started. Just what the schedule is like, you know. I mean, it used to be, you know, reviews ran on Thursday and dining notes ran on Friday and those were the days, you know, and they wouldn't run any other days. Well, now, you know, if there's a big opening or closing that I'm reporting or something in the industry, you know, that will run the day I find out about it online. And then, you know, minute, like the minute, yeah, the minute I finish writing it, there it goes. And then, you know, there's the whole aspect of social media and how we, you know, we're on social media just as kind of like private citizens, but we use it in a way for our jobs um, that can come kind of sometimes be a little bit too all-consuming. Um, we have to step away from that sometimes, but it is a big part of what we do. I mean, Matthew shares his columns. I share everything I write. I take pictures of everything I eat. And, you know, that's not unusual. Everyone in the restaurant's doing the same thing, even though that's not their job. In some way, it's hard. People ask me, you know, when you go out just to eat, like, do you find yourself being critical of it? And the answer is yes. I feel like it's really hard for me to turn it off because because of that kind of, oh, it's always moving and always happening. You know, like even if like this weekend, you know, I wrote a review that came out on Thursday, but we posted it to the internet on Wednesday. It has a, a whole like long lifespan that it didn't have before. It's not really the case anymore that the newspaper comes out today and then whatever comes out into the newspaper tomorrow, no one remembers the day before. Like that's really changed. I've tried to use technology to my advantage a little bit in the way, not not the technology itself, but the it's another thing to be able to write about and write about people's interactions with it and write about sort of, I think writing about it helps me and I, I assume helps the readers kind of understand how it exists as a part of our lives. I mean, I've written columns about uh, a weird um, photo that was taken and posted on Reddit and it got a million views. It was a photo of supposedly of of sewers exploding in Omaha and everybody was posting the photo and talking about the photo. This is a couple years ago in Omaha now, but nobody was actually trying to figure out if it was real or fake. And so that became the point of the column. Is this real? Is this fake? Who took it? And, and what is it? And does it matter? I mean, that's, that's way more interesting to me than just sort of staring at the photo and, you know, thinking it's weird or funny or whatever. I mean, I've written columns about uh, a woman, actually a, a tech executive who dropped all uh, social media for a certain period of time. I, I mean, that's become more in vogue now, but this is, you know, three or four years ago when that would have been sort of an odd decision and sort of how her life changed when she did that, what she realized about herself. I really like those kind of stories. And I think they're important stories to tell in 2018 because we're all sort of grappling with it. We all talk about it, but um, it, it's just a way to, to uh, hold up a, a mirror or, or a lens to, you know, sort of other people in the community and say, this is how they're dealing with um, uh, technology or sort of the age in which we now live. Well, one thing that's cool about Matthew's stories that he does about things like social media and technology is that he applies very old school reporting techniques to figure out whatever the mystery of the manhole explosion photo like nobody you know we were in a bar we were sitting at a bar and everyone was talking about this photo and Matthew just says I'm gonna figure out who took that photo and the next day spent the entire day driving around Omaha making phone calls trying to figure out like looking at the photo seeing where was it you know where could it have been taken and and then going out and you know talking to people face to face and he figured it out and it was like it still remains one of my favorite 
columns he ever wrote. But that's like a very, you know, um, a very old school approach to like a new phenomenon. And I really, I like it when you do that. Thank you. <laughs> I've really enjoyed the way you two have referenced each other's styles, practices, whether it's being a dining partner or your favorite column, which I think is a great segue to ask you to talk a little bit about the book, The Better Half. This might be a little boring if, if we just ask you to recount what you did. So maybe talk about what that project was, but also how it shaped the both of you because you did something together and you're both writers. I'm sure you both have your own peculiarities of style. And so I'm curious about how it affected the two of you. Sure. Uh, the better half as it was uh, originally ima imagined was stories from every part of the state, food stories uh, from Sarah, people, place, thing, stories from me. And we were just going to go out and do this. And that was it. Right. Two dozen stories and a bunch of sidebars about like, um, and you'll see this if you see the book, uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff to do around Nebraska. So sort of functions as a travel guide, but mostly just a just a book about Nebraska uh, from our points of view. What we did not think about until the project started was sort of what this was going to be like to do together. I mean, we both wanted to do it together, but that's sort of that's in the hypothetical, not the reality. And the reality was, especially early on in the project, it was pretty hard. Like we had to really figure out how to work with each other and spend kind of working time with each other in a way that we had never, I mean, we work in the same office, so we'd obviously dealt with this some uh, previously, but this was like, we were, you know, one of us was driving, the other one was writing, or we were in a coffee shop. The The photo in the, uh, on the, is it on the back of the book? Like the yeah, the first, it's a great photo of us, but we're sitting uh, a foot from each other in a, a coffee shop in Shadron, and we're both writing which looks really cool in the photo, but you know, it was hard to sort of get used to that, right? Because the other person might not really want to write. So they start talking about something that happened in their day or, you know what I mean? Like that there's, there was this whole process that, that had to happen, but ultimately it was a pretty, I don't know. It was a, it was like a educational experience for both of us and sort of like a very free, um, marriage counseling where we, you know, sort of had to figure this thing out together, uh, with no, it wasn't like there was a third party there to sort of help us, uh, figure out how to do it best. But I, I think we got a lot better at it during the, during the process. Matthew and I work in really different ways. Um, and I don't really, I, I know that it's hard to kind of describe how we work, but one of the more challenging aspects of it was, are the things Matthew was talking about, just scheduling our time and making sure that, you know, there were some trips where Matthew was super busy and I just would be like sitting around not having anything to do because maybe I didn't have a story in that town or, you know, and we would kind of like split the trips almost by the end where like I would front load with all of my stuff. And then we would figure out a route that we could drive across Nebraska and do all this stuff along the way. And then we'd get to our next stop. And then that's where Matthew maybe would have all his stories and reporting to do. So it was it was challenging, especially at the beginning, um, figuring that out. And there were a lot of days where we were just kind of like, what are we going to do today? And we didn't really have it thought through. Um, but I feel like that is that kind of... I don't know. Um, I don't, it wasn't really like spontaneous, but it was just kind of us figuring out what our stories were going to be and what this project was really going to turn into, you know, as we were doing it. You know, one of the things that um, I think we really ended up with was we ended up appreciating that we did have different styles. And I think we both kind of ended up learning um, a little bit from the other person. Like, I definitely was reminded how good Matthew is at interviewing people. Not that I would see him doing the interviews or be sitting there, but he would tell me about them right after. And I would think, oh gosh, like, you know, I could do it that way sometime. And maybe I would get something that I don't, um, don't get normally. So it was interesting. And I think we both really enjoyed the experience of doing it, but that's not to say that it wasn't challenging at moments. Uh, I totally learned from Sarah, by the way, that it's the same. It's, it's actually about reporting as well, but it's the idea of being just sort of trying to be more comfortable in a situation in a way to make the other person comfortable. She has an ability to do that just by virtue of her personality. The person is comfortable in 
30 seconds. With me, it's it tends to be a longer process, but it was one that I, I would sort of watch her and think, wow, that's cool. I wonder how I can be better at that. So we, we definitely were kind of watching each other in a weird way, although we never really talked about that, including until right now. <laughs> but there was one... Uh, there's one story where we, um, we were driving to Crawford, Nebraska, which is as far away as you can get from Omaha as a place that exists basically in Nebraska, almost to the Wyoming border. And when we left here, um, it was sunny and like, I don't know, 50. It was a nice uh, sort of mid-spring day. Maybe it was even 60. It was early May. We got to outside of Valentine and it was blizzarding like sort of a ground blizzard. And I had, I had uh, been driving, I think Sarah had to, to write that day. So I was just going to drive the whole way. I was super mad because uh, we had had some miscommunication that resulted in us driving a World Herald Ford Focus across the state of Nebraska on this particular day, which is not a great car in the snow. So I was like white knuckling, you know, halfway through this trip or whatever. And Sarah, it starts to like, you know, snow harder or whatever. And Sarah made some remark about, about how it was so pretty. And I just like, <laughs> like lost it. I was so pissed. I mean, we were, and we, we were like, we just yelled at each other in the car for, and you know, we just continued to drive during this time <laughs> for like the next 45 minutes. And then by the time we got to Crawford, it was uh, 52 degrees and sunny again. And, and the, you know, the argument had turned into something that was funny yeah. to, to both of us a couple hours later. So basically, I, what I take from that story is if you drive far enough, any, any uh, argument or any weather pattern can, uh, can, can blow over. <laughs> well, I hate to say this, but time has flown and uh, we've hit the end. So uh, I, in the spirit of how we began, notwithstanding the story of the painful journey, I, I hope this experience hasn't been too painful for you being at this end of the, the, the microphone. No, that journey was way more painful <laughs> than this. <laughs> To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Sarah Baker Hansen and Matthew Hansen. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Thanks. Thank you. I did not put two and two together that this is 1013. Yeah, we've, we've like totally oh, gotten into good. it in the last couple of months. I've actually been thinking about writing a column about it because it's just like this. And I realized there's a little, you know, there were some stories and stuff when it when it started. But yeah, it's this. I, I love it. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>